Okay, well this week, you so. this week we're starting a new series, um, one of the last foundations we have to go through. Uh, I believe after this we'll have uh, two more to go through, actually three, I'm sorry, three more to go through. Uh, one's on evangelism, one's on angelology and demonology, and one is on uh, biblical perfection and holiness. But this week we're talking about the Christian family. Okay, and probably for the, about the next four weeks total, including this week, which is a very important institution of God. In fact, the family was the first institution created by God, unless, of course, you think naming animals is an institution. Um, so it was the first institution created by God, and it's possibly, probably, the most important institution uh, known to man and created by God. Yet the other one that's uh, probably neck and neck with this one is the church. But the institution of the church even, without a proper family structure, would fail. It would completely fall apart. And because this institution of God is so important, it's precisely why the devil is attacking this institution from all angles. He knows that the breakdown of this institution, the family, will break down every other institution. That's why we have things like homosexuality and homosexual marriage being promoted. That's why there are so many mothers working, and feminism is default, mothers working outside the home. That's why millions of babies, unborn babies, are being slaughtered every year. That's why fathers are portrayed as buffoons on TV and in the movies. That's why a lot of them really are buffoons. That's why we have divorce numbers running so high, outside the church and inside the church. That's why adultery and sexual immorality are running rampant. That's why we have so many children being born out of wedlock and so many single-parent families because the devil is trying to destroy the family. And in doing so, he can destroy everything if he destroys the family. Of course, destroying families, in turn, destroys individual souls and sends countless millions of people to hell by destroying the family. And many here in this fellowship have been directly affected by the breakdown of the family whether it be as an adult, as a child, or both. Whether it was your fault to some degree, or whether you were completely innocent in the matter. Most here have been affected by the devil's destruction in this first institution of God called the family. Some are still even now being affected by the devil's destruction in the family. But praise the Lord, though, it can stop. And it can never happen again as much as is in your power. It can never happen again. Because God can also bring restoration. He can bring reformation. And he can even start new things. Praise him for that. And we have many testimonies of such things, even here in our own fellowship. We've seen rebellious children saved. We've seen godly men and women who've been through very difficult situations and family situations brought together for the glory of God. 
We have seen children who are precious in God's eyes, given godly parents that they may be properly raised. We've seen people who are living in fornication be joined together in holy matrimony and be given many children, whether through natural procreation or adoption, that are being raised in the fear of the Lord. And I'm convinced, friends, that we're going to see many, many more testimonies of such things, of restoration, reformation, and of new things being started before it's all over. One of the main points of this series on the Christian family is to ensure that we don't allow the devil to have a foothold in our families, whereas the current families or future families. Personally, I grew up from the age of eight onward basically only seeing my father one to two times a year until I chose to move in with him before my senior year of high school. And my father by no means led me in righteousness. I don't say this to put him down or disrespect him, um, but so you would know, you know, what I went through. Some of you may be able to relate to that. And I think that to some degree that my sister, at 37 years old, 28 years removed from this divorce, is still affected negatively in some way. Now, she could allow God to completely change her life. She could let him heal her and change her, but she hasn't up to this point. So I, I ask for your prayers for her, that she'll become a Christian, a godly woman, a godly mother of her two sons, one of which was adopted by my parents when he was around two or three, and the other one, which is now nine years old, who lived with us for about a year, a couple years ago. So you can pray for my, my nephews. Uh, neither one of them are Christians. One is 18 and one is 9. But praise God, he is a father to the fatherless. Praise God that we can have successful families in his eyes. And I think one of the most powerful truths I first learned from Psalm 68.5 is that he's a father to the fatherless. Because I, you know, I didn't really have a father. You know, he was, he was kind of there, kind of wasn't there, and he definitely didn't influence me properly in the right direction. And uh, it was one of the most powerful truths that I first learned as a new Christian. So whether someone has a neglectful father, an absent father, or a father they never met, God is a father to the fatherless. And sometimes he's even gracious enough to provide a temporary earthly replacement for the one who is not doing his job. <coughs> God gave me a replacement. You know, I didn't respect him. At the time, I didn't realize how good of a father he was at the time, but he gave me a replacement. He wasn't a Christian by any means, but he was a what you call a good man. And I'll tell you, I think that every year since I've become a Christian that I've sent him a Father's Day card, I've apologized to him profusely for the way I treated him, how disrespectful and ungodly I was towards him. And uh, praise the Lord, I praise the Lord for him. But sometimes God won't send a temporary replacement here on earth. Sometimes he is the replacement. Sometimes he's a replacement. And not sending a temporary earthly replacement may be difficult in the short term, but is where we need to be long term. It's where we need to be long term. Um, he is the one who ultimately we need to cling to, the Father in heaven. Earthly fathers will make mistakes. Earthly fathers may sin against you. Earthly fathers may not always do what is wise for you. Earthly fathers may leave you or forsake you for ungodly reasons. And ultimately, every earthly father, no matter how godly he is, will die. He will die. 
But the Father who is in heaven never makes mistakes. The Father who is in heaven will never sin against you. The Father who is in heaven will never do what is unwise. The Father who is in heaven will never leave you nor forsake you for ungodly things, and he will never die. That's why he is the ultimate replacement. He is the ult- And that's what I figured out early on. He is the ultimate replacement. Of course, just because our earthly fathers can be sinful at times, may fail us at times, uh, may make mistakes against us, may not always do what's wise for us, may leave us even, or forsake us, is not an excuse for us to dishonor them, or to disrespect them, or to not love them, or to sin against them, or to put them down. We must still honor them, respect them, not sin against them, not put them down. And if your earthly father is not a Christian, reach out to him with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is the purpose of the family? Well, to understand the purpose of the family, let's go back to the beginning in Genesis. Just turn there with me in Genesis chapter 2. Of course, the family starts with a man and a woman. It doesn't start with a with a man and a man. It doesn't start with just a man and just a woman. It doesn't start with a woman and a woman. It doesn't start with more than one man and more than one woman. Marriage according to scriptures, and therefore according to God, is between one woman and one man in a monogamous marital relationship. Of course, monogamous means that you're not giving your affections, uh, your intimacy, your attention in that way to any other person. That's what it means to be monogamous. The society nowadays is constantly trying to redefine what marriage is. Well, when it comes to defining things, those who have done apologetics and precept know this, we must turn to the absolute authority on the subject at hand. And the absolute authority of what marriage is is the person who established it. And that is God. He defines what it is. Let's decide to, to do what it may and allow some sane gender marriage. Let society redefine marriage all at once and say that a human can marry an animal. I even saw one time that a, a, girl, a woman married a roller coaster or a bridge or something like that. Um, people redefine marriage all the time. But we must have an absolute definition and it must come from the person who defines what marriage is. And that's God. So they can do whatever they want, so they can make uh, same-gender marriage acceptable or legal, but it won't be legal in God's eyes. It won't be acceptable in God's eyes. People ask me that question in the streets. and asked me recently at Columbus State Community College. This girl came over to me and asked me about homosexual marriage. It's big in politics. I said, listen, America is not a Christian nation. I don't expect it with ungodly leaders to follow the Bible. If they redefine marriage, it's not going to affect me directly. I still know what marriage is. God still knows what marriage is. And he's not going to change his mind on it. Because some country decided they wanted to change and redefine it. It's still going to be the same. Marriage will never be anything other than what God has determined it to be. Simply put. So with all that in mind, let's go back to the first marriage here. Genesis chapter 2. Let's see what the purpose of the family is, it starts with the purpose of marriage. Because the family starts with a marriage between a man and a woman. Okay? 
So we're going to see some of the purposes in the family by seeing the purpose of marriage. Genesis chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 2, and verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So the first initial reason for marriage is to provide companionship and a helper in this life. So for those of you who are married, are you a companion to your spouse? Do you spend good quality time with them alone? Here's your question to ask yourself. If your children were gone tomorrow, just were gone, in your current state, would you have a good relationship with your spouse? Good question to ask yourself. A good marriage relationship is foundational to a good family. Your children are watching. You are the most important model of what a marriage should be in your children's eyes. Because they're going to see you more than anything else. They're going to see how you interact with each other, how you treat each other, how you talk to each other, how the roles are managed in your household. They're going to see that more than they see any other marriage. Any marriage in this church. Any marriage in your extended family. They're going to see your marriage more than anything else. So you must first ask yourself, as we're looking at the purpose of marriage, we see the purpose is companionship and to be a helper in this life. Are you being a companion to your spouse? Are they seeing that? Because you're gonna, they're going to follow your example most times. Most times. Wives, are you a helper to your husband? Are you helping him? Hey, remember, there's, there's only one head in the marriage. Only one head of the body. Do you nag him about things or try to manipulate him to get your way? Do you put him down for bad decisions? Are you submissive to him even when you may not fully understand or fully agree? These are really good questions to ask yourself, ladies. To make sure you're being a helpmate to your husband, not a hindrance to your husband. So we see that one of the first initial reasons for marriage is for companionship and for the wives to be a helper to their husband in this life. Go down to verse 24 of Genesis 2. We'll see the second initial reason for marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall be become one flesh. The word joined to here means to adhere closely, like kind of like glue. Okay? Um, to be faithfully devoted to, to cling to. So, married couples, are you joined to each other? Do you cling to each other? Are you adhered together? Are you faithfully devoted to each other? Some questions to ask yourself. And what does it mean to be one flesh? Well, to some degree, of course, it means the sexual union between a man and a woman. But it goes a lot deeper than that. A lot deeper than that. When me and Angela first got married, we'll test them one here, uh, we moved from Illinois we were going to school, up to Michigan, where her parents lived. I wanted to know them a little better. I didn't really know them very well. Our marriage happened pretty quickly, as most of you know. Um, but after being there for three or four months, me and Angela were praying the whole time where God would lead us, where he would want us to be, what he wants us to do as a young couple. 
to seeking the Lord in our separate times and together. And the Lord led us using this scripture, where it's quoted in the New Testament and here, to lead us to leave Michigan, to leave where her parents were, to leave the comfort of that, to leave them trying to interfere or get involved, to try to order our steps as parents do when you have children who are unmarried. You're helping them, you're ordering their steps, you're discipling them, you're leading them. Sometimes parents have a hard time letting go of that. And um, I'm not speaking negatively about her parents, but the Lord led us to leave, to go to Louisiana. Now, we knew no one there. We didn't have jobs there. Didn't have a church family there. And we just got married for three or four months beforehand. Okay? Actually, about five months. And uh, But the Lord just spoke clearly to both of us, individually in our separate times. And so we sold everything we had just got for our wedding, all of it, all we had is what we could fit in our car, in our backseat of our car, in our trunk. And we went to Louisiana because the Lord led us to do that. Okay? And I'll tell you, those four years in Louisiana, we became one flesh in every way. No distractions, no interference. We became one flesh in every way. And the closest family was an 18-hour drive away. 18-hour drive away. Now, I'm not saying this is the standard for what every person should do when they get married. Not by any means. Some people can live near their parents, and that's fine. Um, that's what the Lord led us to do. So becoming one flesh is more than just a sexual union between a man and a woman. Becoming one flesh, um, it goes a lot deeper. It refers to stuff like uh, how to raise children, being one flesh in that, one mind in that. Um, theology and doctrine. You know, one mind. I, I, can, I can imagine going back to the how to raise children, that if a husband came into a marriage, both Christians now, and he said, well, I think we should spank our children. The wife said, no, we shouldn't. There's going to be some big problems in that marriage. I can imagine if, if the husband came to marriage and believed in holiness and you can lose your salvation, the wife can't say, no, you can do whatever you want, you're still saved. There's going to be problems in that marriage. Okay, Things like how to spend money. Let's say you have a, the wife who likes to save money and be frugal and buy used and go to Goodwill. And, and the husband, he just wants to spend, spend, spend more than he even has. There's going to be problems in that marriage. Um, roles in the family. You know, if the husband thinks the wife should stay at home and take care of the children, but the wife thinks, no, I need to be, uh, you know, work outside the home and be a career woman and make as much money as I can, there's going to be problems in that family. God's calling upon your life. The husband thinks, well, I need to be a missionary in Africa. And the wife says, no, I don't want to be a missionary in Africa. Are you crazy? I don't live in a third world country. You know, I think I need to be a missionary in Ireland. There's going to be problems. And these are things, obviously, you got to work out beforehand and uh, before you get married. But being one flesh refers to a lot more than just the sexual union between a male and a female. How many heads and brains does each person have? One and one. Now, what would it be like if you had one head and two brains, and the brains didn't agree with each other? It's pretty funny, isn't it? You would have problems. Or if you had two heads and two brains and they didn't agree with each other, you would have problems. But as 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, the head of woman is man. And so, 
just as the head of the church is Christ, he should be ordering our steps, telling us where to go, telling us what to do, and we just simply obey him. It's the same way in a marriage. But the wife has to be willing to submit to her husband in those sense. So there must be one flesh, and more than just the sexual union way, there must be one flesh in every way. One mind, one purpose, one calling, uh, and all these issues, these important issues. doesn't mean you can't have disagreements about things. And we'll talk about that more tomorrow when we get more into marriage relationship. But this is just the basic stuff. So, this, And the second initial reason for marriage is that they be joined to and become one flesh. They cling. They adhere. They become faithfully devoted to each other. Or to King James, they cleave to each other. They become one flesh in every aspect. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. We see a third reason here. Now I'm going back because Genesis 2 is giving more detail to what happened. We're going to see here in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 28. After God created male and female in his image, he said, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the third purpose, the third initial reason for marriage, which usually, not always, usually happens as a result of number two, the union of one flesh, is being fruitful and multiplying. Children, but not just any children, though. Godly children. Turn to Genesis 18, 19. See what God said to Abraham. So God doesn't just want any children. He wants godly children. That's what he wants. Genesis 18, 19, uh, the Lord is speaking to Abraham. And he's, he just sent the... Uh, He's sending the men off towards. He's going to send the angels towards Sodom here in a minute. And he says in, in verse, uh, let's start in verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So the, the third initial reason for marriage that we see in Genesis 1, and we're, we're seeing it here again in Genesis 18, is godly children. Now why did God know Abraham? That he may command his children and his household after him. They may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. Now if that was true of Abraham, how much more true for a New Testament Christian couple who claims to be full of the Holy Spirit? How much more true for us, friends? That God desires, He knows us as couples, as families, that He might bring forth godly children. Malachi chapter 2. God is speaking to Judah now. This is after they went back to Israel, after the uh, they've been taken by Babylon. 
taken by the Babylonians to Babylon. They went back to Israel now. And uh, God is speaking through Malachi to the Israelites of Judah. He says in verse 13 of Malachi 2, And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. So there's a reason why God is not receiving their offerings. They're doing everything according to the book now, of course, bringing them to him. For some reason, he's not receiving them. Then you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. If you treat your spouse improperly, I can basically guarantee you, you will not have godly offspring. Because you're being a bad example to them. You're being a bad example to your children on how to treat your spouse, whether it's in this situation with the male treating the female improperly, or the other way around. You will end up with ungodly offspring who will be a curse to you and will be partly your fault as well. So one of the main reasons we see here that he joined them together as one into a covenant, a remnant of the Spirit, is because he seeks godly offspring. He seeks godly offspring. Psalm 127, starting in verse 3. Psalm 127, starting in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. You know... Most of us, including myself, I thought all our lives, Christian life, that we have one offensive weapon. We have a sword of the Spirit. Now, you have two. You have arrows. You have a bow and arrow. And depending upon how many children you have, it's going to depend upon how many arrows you have. I don't know about you, but if you're an archer, you want a lot of arrows. <laughs> you don't want just one or two. You want, you want a lot. And children are not a cursing to you if you're raised improperly. They're a heritage to you. They're a reward to you. Just like as we saw in the recent wedding, that a, a, a man who finds a wife finds a good thing. A man and woman who find children find a good thing. It's a reward to them if they're raised properly. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. So you want more people to go out preaching with you? Raise your children properly. Raise your children properly. They're like mighty arrows in your hand to speak with your enemies. And if you raise your children properly, they'll be a blessing to you and make you happy instead of miserable. You know, most parents I see these days, where no, where'd I go? They seem as miserable as can be. They seem as burdened down as possible. They treat their children like an inconvenience. That they can't wait until they turn 18, they can kick them out of the house. Well, guess what? If you don't raise them properly, they're probably not getting out at 18. They're probably going to hang around for a long time because you didn't raise them properly and they make you as miserable as can be. 
So you need to raise them properly. So we see that the, the third initial reason for marriage, which usually happens as a result of the second one, is children. Children. Which completes the family unit. Now, how children? Well, there's, in my opinion, three different ways you can have children. One, natural procreation. The seed of the man and the egg of the woman come together, the child is conceived, and she's brought forth about, or he's brought forth about nine months later. That's the way it usually works. But then we have adoption. Whether both parents are adopting, or one parent is adopting. And then the third way we have is preaching the gospel and then discipling new Christians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, Paul, he never got married, right? Paul never got married, never had children by natural procreation, never adopted any children that we're aware of. But we see he still had children. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I had begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. He said there's some people who, they're not able to have children by natural procreation, that God hasn't led them to adopt. Well, guess what? You have another way to have the children. You can go preach the gospel. You can see people saved. You can disciple new believers, and they become your children. They become your mighty arrows that you can shoot at the enemy. They become the ones who stand with you at the gate and deal with the enemies of God, with your enemies too. They deal with that. Galatians 4.19, we see this theme all throughout the Apostle Paul's writings. He says, My little children, Galatians 4.19, My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. Now, you, you ladies, you labor in birth. You know you, you, you know the pain of that. You know the suffering of that. You know the sacrifice of that. Some of you will know the sacrifice of that eventually. And the same way with raising spiritual children, whether it's your own through natural procreation, your own through adoption, or whether your own through preaching the gospel and having them saved and discipling them. There's, a, there's birth pains involved. There's mourning involved. There's sacrifice involved. You know, discipleship has the word discipline in it for a reason. There's discipline involved. And Paul said about the Galatians, who were seeming to backslide. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. That's what he wanted for them. And you see Philemon, uh, no chapters in Philemon, just verse 10, right before Hebrews. Paul says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. So while Paul was in chains, he met Onesimus. He got saved through his ministry. He begot him. And so there's three different ways to have children. There's no excuse to have at least one of these for any of you. Even if you never get married, there's no excuse not to have at least one of these. Number three, especially. And if you have children by natural procreation or by adoption, they are your first ministry. I had a person question me on that recently. 
because I uploaded a uh, clarified version of the 10 pitfalls the open-air preacher, and I talked about that in this. Who else can you say has been given to you by God and you have access to them 24 hours a day, 7 days a week? You can't say that about anybody else. God has, is a reward from God to you. He's given directly to you. They are your first responsibility. Men, your first responsibility is your wife. If you're not discipling your wife, it's not going to help you disciple your children. Because while you're not around, if you're not discipling your wife properly, she may be ungodly as well. Because you're not discipling her properly. You disciple your wife first, then your children together as a couple. It's your first response, your first ministry, the first institution of man. Because what does God want? He wants godly offspring. Not ungodly offspring. If you're not discipling, are they going to turn out godly? Maybe by a miracle of God they might. Not because of your efforts. I mean, I wasn't discipled properly. I'm a miracle of God. That I'm even a Christian. First Christian in my family. I look back. I can't find any. But praise the Lord, I'm going to raise my children properly. I'm going to disciple them so they can't say the same thing five generations from now. That they can't, someone can find a Christian five generations back. They are your first ministry. And God forbid we go out into the streets and preach five days a week to thousands of people, and even some get saying we disciple them, but we don't disciple our own family. God forbid. You know, I've said it before, and I mean it. I'll say it again. I know how much we focus on evangelism here, how much we want to preach in the streets, preach on college campuses. You know how much I love that. But if you forsake your family to go preach in the streets, there's something wrong. I don't care if you ever preach in the streets again, as long as you're witnessing one-to-one, passing out tracts, trying to reach people, as long as you're taking care of your family. Don't forsake your family. For some ministry, they are your ministry. They are the mighty arrows. They're the ones who can go out with you and preach the gospel. There's no one else you can say that about. So if you have children by natural procreation or adoption, they are your first ministry. Husbands after your wife, they're your first ministry. Wives after taking care of your husband, they're your first ministry. Okay, so so the godly family starts initially with marriage between a man and a woman. A godly man and godly woman. And we'll talk about more later on about premarital, premarital stuff for young people. Um, and then they become one flesh. They're companions to each other. The wife's a helper to the husband. They, they, they cling to each other. And from that cling, from that joining together, comes forth children. Whether through natural procreation, through adoption, or through spiritual children. By preaching the gospel. And those who don't have the first two, through natural procreation or adoption, they're more responsible for the third group. Because you have more time on your hands. Because you don't have anyone in the first two groups. You have more time on your hands to do the preaching of the gospel. To seek forth children who can become begotten through the ministry of sharing the gospel to the lost. And then they can become your children. They can become your disciples. So we need to be fruitful and multiply in one of those ways. One of those ways. That's the whole point of a godly union put together. Be fruitful and multiply. Not necessarily naturally procreation. Not necessarily even adopting. But, but God wants you to be fruitful and to multiply. 
what you're doing for him. Because he desires godly offspring from you. That's what he wants from you. And then I had the fourth reason for marriage. And this really sums it up. Go to Ephesians 5. got done talking about marriage from verses 22 to verse 29, but we're not going to focus on that part right now. Verse 30 says, For we are members of his body, talking about Jesus, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Marriage ultimately is a picture of Christ and the church. We see this comparison over and over again in the New Testament Scriptures. Let me just say this. If you have a better relationship, spouse, with your spouse, than you do with Jesus, with God, you've missed the whole point of marriage. You've missed the whole point of marriage. If you have a better relationship with your spouse than you do with God, you missed the whole point of marriage. If you have a better relationship as a parent with your children than you do with your Father in Heaven, you missed the whole point of family. You missed the whole point of family. If you have a better relationship with your parents' children than you do with your father in heaven, you missed the whole point of family. You missed the whole point of it. The overarching point of getting married is to marry Christ. The overarching point of being part of an earthly family is to become part of God's family. Otherwise, what good did that family do for you? What good did it do for you to be married if you don't see you need to marry Christ? What good does it do for you to be a part of a family here on earth if you don't become a part of an eternal family that's going to be in the kingdom of God? And so we see the, the four points, the four purposes of family. One, companionship and helper in this life. Two, becoming one flesh. And then guess what? Moving out and growing up. I missed that point, didn't I? Moving out and growing up. You'll grow up fast when you move out. Won't you? You'll grow up fast when you move out. Moving up and growing uh, Moving out and growing up. The third reason, to be fruitful and multiply in one of those three ways. And fourth, to realize the whole thing is symbolic of Christ and Christians and being a part of God's family. That's the whole point. That's the overarching point of that. Okay, so we'll stop there for today. Uh, next week, we'll get to questions and objections here in a second, or things you want to add. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about marriage, godly marriage, the husband's role, the wife's role, how it works. Hopefully, the week after that, we'll talk about parenting. Um, and uh, I haven't decided what the fourth week's going to be about yet, but we'll get there eventually. So let's open up the floor for if you have questions objections or things you want to add to what was said. And wait for the microphone, please, if you have a question or something to add to it. Go, Tracy. So, just something I wanted to add. Okay. In addition to uh, the Apostle Paul, you also have the Apostle John. Right. In uh, 1 John chapter 2, 
He says, My little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. Right. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So here, I don't believe the Apostle John is just speaking to his own personal family. No. He's speaking to the church. Yeah. And he's speaking to the church as his little children. Right. Uh, so that's that's another example of having children in the gospel. Amen. That's good, bro. Yeah, there's a, uh, a verse, and I'm having difficulty finding it right now, but uh, it talks about leaving lands and families for the gospel. And I've even uh, used that verse to justify myself with that, but what do you say to guys that, that would use that verse to justify, well, I'm going out five days a week, I'm, I'm going to receive a hundredfold in the kingdom because I've left my family, I've left my land, I've left my possessions in order to do this work that God's called me to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can do that work and take your family with you, number one. Uh, but addressing that verse in particular, which doesn't mention that part, is that you can go out and come back. You don't have to go out, it doesn't say go out for a long period of time or leave them permanently. I mean, you have to be wise, and you have to take the whole scripture, whole counsel of scripture into, into hand here. You can't just take one verse and say, well, I'm going to miss everything else that's said about raising children and about being godly parents. I'm just going to go and forget about it all. It's really just a lack of responsibility, in my opinion. And um, I've read biographies of men of God who have not been good fathers, and unfortunately, you don't really hear much about their children following their footsteps in ministry. And so... Um, how much more better of a, how much better of a testament would it be to have your children go along with you, to have your wife go along with you, or to not neglect them but still do that, as if that couldn't be done? Why couldn't you go out five days a week and take your family with you? Why couldn't you go out five, five days a week like you're working a regular normal job and still come back every single day and spend time with your family? Or even take them along with you on the road and you're always coming back to them every single day. That way you're not neglecting these things. So there's other solutions to that that would incorporate that verse into it that would still not require you to neglect your family to the point where they're becoming ungodly, they're not being discipled, and you're acting like you don't even care about them. As if some college student or some sinner on the street who you don't even know matters more than your children do who are given directly to you. 